You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Patrick and Caitlin, good morning. Mark is still on assignment, vacationing in Amsterdam. Um, I don't want to prognosticate as to what he's doing in Amsterdam. Although you, there was a time and a, and a day where you had to go to Amsterdam to do things that you can now do on Nantucket. So I, I don't know who misinformed Mark that he had to go to Amsterdam to partake. But anyway. Um, That's not fair, Howard. I thought he was there for a conference. Mm, okay. Um, so you get the Martins today. It's a Martin. The Mar- it's a Martin Friday. Uh, very good. Um, Caitlin. I have a bridge to sell you. Great. If you're buying that one. Um, uh, Okay. So a lot going on as always. Um, First of all, interestingly, both of you were at conferences, governor's conferences this week. Caitlin, you were down in Atlanta at the Republican Governors Association. Patrick, you are. I'm still here. I'm at the beautiful Weston in Jersey City. That's awesome. <laughs> um, at the Democratic Governors Association conference. Uh, so let's talk about that. But but first, Caitlin, you had a thought about both parties stepping on on their message, which I think is really interesting because it's true. So why don't you lay that out and we'll talk about it. Yeah, so I think, you know, we had an interesting week and and I hate to just talk about the Beltway fodder given, but this is the Beltway briefing. So let's do it. This week. Um, I believe it was Tuesday morning. Um, President Biden came out with a big celebration and signing ceremony on the White House lawn on uh, what 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 he's calling and what Democrats are calling, but what I personally hate to call the Inflation Reduction Act that reconciliation um, tax climate and health care bill that passed quickly during August recess after Senator Manchin um, had been sort of secretly negotiating with Schumer on what the art of the possible could be in a reconciliation bill. So it was it was really interesting timing and kind of an interesting split screen. And I'm not quite sure who in the White House picked this particular um, date and time to celebrate and have a concert and some weirdest bill signing I've ever seen too. I'll just throw that out there. There, I don't, there every lobbyist in DC I know was there. Like it was a Tuesday party. I I didn't see any of the normal types of groups you would have. It was, it was really weird. It was actually mostly staff, which was sort of a, yeah, it was bizarre. I've just never. So, Anyways, we've got this big celebration and, and I forget the name of the artist that was singing, but it was kind of a dark song at the exact same time that uh, the CPI came out with um, inflation numbers for this year or for this month, I apologize, um, and, and inflation exceeded estimates and um, came in at a whopping 8.3%, I believe, for the month of August. And it was just sort of ironic that 
we've got, you know, we're celebrating the Inflation Reduction Act and these these pretty, pretty uh, stark numbers come out at the exact same time. And, you know, there was a lot of conversation about, again, maybe pick Thursday, Friday, maybe save the signing ceremony till next week, do it last week. But why, why, they, uh, why did they set themselves up for such a terrible split screen image? Patrick, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it was kind of weird. Um, like I said, I've, usually bill signings, um, you know, you have sort of the various groups that are going to benefit there. I'm sure they did. or But the, this the bill was so confusing and the public didn't really have any time to digest it. And just what I saw on my social media feed all day was like just a bunch of random people I know at the White House for a bill signing ceremony. It was just, it was just weird. Howard, you've been to a bunch of those. I mean, it's like, it's supposed to be uh, kind of a nice crowning achievement thing. And I, I just thought it looked kind of bizarre to me anyway. Yeah. I mean, strange, but you're right on the, the messaging. It's, it's crazy. Although it feels like there's some other statistic every day um, uh, on inflation. So maybe they felt like, well, <laughs> any days as good as another, because we're going to get our hat handed to us anyway. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, I can't remember who I was talking to, but it was somebody not at all involved in, in politics and government this week, not our clients, like, um, you know, somebody out, out in, in the world. And they, they said to me, I saw, you know, Biden is signing this thing. Like, when is that going to start to reduce inflation? And Great I had to question <laughs> and I had to not laugh and say, well, I don't know if it ever is like, it's not look, I mean, it was brilliant branding based and, and, and mansion basically branded the bill. Yeah. Not the administration. Right. Um, I mean, he was the one that insisted on it. I, I think that was smart, although it could come back to bite them. It will come back to bite them in all likelihood in, in 2024. Um, and, and Caitlin, you're right. Maybe it'll bite them, bite them now. And then on the other side, you were pointing out Lindsey Graham, Caitlin. And, and so talk about that. Uh, well, Lindsey Graham sort of surprised, um, Republican leadership and, and a lot of, of members of, of his Republican Senate caucus this week by, you know, the same day that we're on the Republican side pointing out the irony of this bill signing and CPI numbers and, and the frustration and the kitchen table issues that we know so many Americans are focused on heading into November. And that needs to be the message that, that the Republican Party needs to continue to put front and center and polling is showing that that is inflation and kitchen table issues are the number one issues for voters right now. Well, the same day we, we had that gift from the Biden administration, um, Senator Graham decides to introduce a bill, a, a bill that would federally um, ban abortion beyond 15 weeks. I don't, it's been dubbed in the media as an abortion ban. It's, it's not an abortion ban. It's a ban on abortions beyond 15 weeks. But again, people don't want to, the Republican party, Mitch McConnell was caught off guard. Um, you know, Senator Thune was caught off guard. Many, many members of Republican leadership were caught off guard. A lot of Republican strategists have come out and said, you know, not not helpful, Lindsay, not helpful. He's introduced this bill before. Um, 
in years prior, it's been a ban at 20 weeks, but it's sort of. They've all voted for it too, by the way, Caitlin, all the members that didn't like the political timing, they've all supported this in the past. Well, 20 is different than 15. And it's also different when we're now out there saying, let's let it be a state's rights issue with the Supreme Court overturning Roe. So you can't have it be a state's rights issue, but that, I mean, it's, I get it. The the whole state's rights thing. The merits of. The bill, you know, back and forth, but unhelpful timing. As we talked about last week, the whole states' rights thing is upside down because it feels like every other issue, you know, involves hypocrisy with respect to states' rights. Like, on the one hand, Democrats want states' rights on, or Republicans want states' rights on this issue, and then they don't want it on some other issue. It's like... So I don't buy that aspect of things. And I'll tell you, though, guys, like for our audience, we we always talk before we start recording what we are going to talk about. And we usually come with a bunch of ideas. And one of the things I said is, well, we can talk about Trump saying he'll run regardless of run for president 24, even if he gets indicted. And we were like, oh, enough Trump. Like we always talk about Trump. but. But Caitlin and Patrick, like, to me, the number one question I still get each and every day is what's who's running, who's on the ticket in 2024. And I know it becomes like repetitive to talk about Donald Trump and and Joe Biden and whether they're running. But that's actually what everybody's talking about. That's what every client wants to talk about. That's what people are talking about. Yes, regular Americans are talking about food on the table and inflation and the cost of things. And that's obviously a serious issue. The stock market is certainly paying attention to that. I mean, these are serious. These are, you know, the economy is the number one, still the number one issue from a voter perspective. But the first thing in every meeting that everybody wants to talk about is who's on the ticket. And I mean, it's just a fact. Yeah. But you mentioned at the beginning, Howard, Caitlin and I were both at, uh, have been at governor's conferences this week. They would also like to know who's going to be running for president in 2024. I can tell you on our side, I'm certain on uh, the Republican side as well. We have, half a dozen very ambitious governors here who are raising big national money and hats in some cases have extraordinary personal wealth. And if they were to find out that it was an open race in 2024, they would immediately announce they were running for president. Um, but until president Biden, you know, makes his formal decision or, or maybe he has already and just, uh, you know, indicates that he is going to run again, they can't do anything. They're just, they're just kind of, uh, all dressed up with nowhere to go. I think the same thing on the Republican side, right, Caitlin? I think a little, I want to make a a really interesting observation that I had this week. You know, I do a lot of Republican House events, a lot of Republican Senate events, and, and, and now attending some of the Republican governor events. And what I actually found refreshing is that, frankly, Trump didn't really come up at RGA. In fact, um, Governor Kemp, the current governor of Georgia, who is facing a tight um, election race against Stacey Abrams in, in the November election, but we're, we're thinking that Kemp's going to pull it out. He's going to be uh, fine. He's going to win. a really rough primary by Trump-endorsed former Georgia Senator David Perdue, 
And RGA is one of the few organizations that actually weighed in and support it during the primary and support of the sitting governor to ensure that he got the nomination. Um, you know, there was the frustration that Trump had with Kemp about, you know, former former allies, but was really frustrated when Kemp refused to say that the election was stolen in Georgia. And so he decided to get Senator David Perdue to, to former Senator David Perdue to run against Kemp. And Fortunately, Kemp got the nomination, but I thought it was refreshing to hear, and he was just so thankful for the support of RGA during that time, in juxtaposition to some of the, you know, what we're seeing in the House where Trump-endorsed candidates have kicked off some really great members, Congressman Rodney Davis, Congressman Peter, freshman Peter Meyer from Michigan, obviously Liz Cheney. And it was really nice that I didn't hear Trump's name a lot at RGA, and I frankly appreciated that. They were more focused on what governors were doing to, you know, deal with the federal government on some of the frustrations with IIJA implementation and some of the regulatory um, burdens that the agencies have been putting on some of these dollars that the governors are so excited to just get out the door and try to focus on infrastructure. I, I heard a lot more about policies that matter to the everyday American person than I have in a while. And I frankly thought it was refreshing. Well, look, I mean, obviously the Republicans don't want to sit around and talk about Trump because he's a drag on them politically. Um, yeah. But Caitlin's point, I do, I do think can, can it, I, I've talked to Caitlin about these governor's conferences for years. It's nice because they have real jobs. Like being a, <laughs> being a governor is a real job. Uh, they're not the chief executive around. of your state. Yeah, they're not sitting around debating caucus politics, and you know, it, it it's you know, being a legislator is a job. It's like what you make of it. We know some very talented legislators who build coalitions and pass legislation, but you can also sit there and do absolutely nothing too. And you're technically fulfilling your job requirement as long as you show up and vote. Being governor, that's a hard job. I mean, you got a lot going on. And in these really difficult times, uh, economically and everything else, you know, they have a lot they have to grapple with every day. And so I, I do think, you know, you find the engagement at the governor's conference is a little more interesting. So I, I, I agree, Caitlin, with with your point. No, as as do I. And look, this is why we have state and local practices as part of our business. You know, right. we're, we're not a firm. At, uh, most firms in Washington are Washington only firms. And yes, this is called the Beltway Briefing. And we talk a lot about politics as it relates to who comes to Washington, who's in Washington, what's Washington doing. Um, but but we have, now we have five um, state and local practices. This week, uh, we added another. John Reich joined us uh, in, in Minnesota. We stood up a Minnesota government affairs practice it's the metro area in the country with the um, uh, the largest per capita concentration of Fortune 500 companies. It's a robust government affairs market. You have the the major cities co-located with the the state capital. It's a great market. John um, is a fabulous addition to our team. Patrick grows out the. Uh, Midwest footprint. You've been Midwest so, Empire. I want to call yeah, it. Well, there yeah. you go. That, that you've been so successful in in building for us. Um, so, I mean, look, we. That's why we are in these states, and um, so 
yeah, things actually happen. Similarly, you know, while in Washington, there's a lot of bluster on Capitol Hill and a lot of bluster in the White House, the business of governing at the agency level goes on. Those are real agencies with doing real things that impact the lives of everyday Americans. And obviously I spent a lot of time on, on that side of things and, and, you know, real things happen there. It's not just talk. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear about your experiences at the governor's conferences. And of course they don't sit around and talk about, they don't sit around and just talk about, politics they have things they they actually want to get done need to get done but give us some more flavor for for the buzz caitlin like you know what were you doing there what else are people talking about tell us more i think a lot of conversation it was it was an interesting and a, and a good reminder that you know the states really did give the federal government the great give the federal government its power and there was a lot of that from some of these republican governors um there was a lot of states as labs of innovation as it came to health policy as it came to, to infrastructure ai um governor kemp um hosted us at the governor's mansion on monday evening it was a really just nice time to to come together and share ideas and hear from the chief executives of states that are facing frankly a lot of really complicated issues, whether it's, you know, immigration issues in the border states. We've got, I think, 8,000, um, you know, new immigrants a day coming over the border and, and, and ways they're trying to, from a health perspective, from a safety perspective, deal with that. We talked a little bit about education policy. It was it was a really, you know, interesting um conversation and a good reminder for me personally as an inside the beltway kind of swamp creature as my parents like to remind me from time to time um, what the issues are in the states that people are talking about and what's really happening in the states and things aren't looking all you know it's it was a good juxtaposition good I, I have a I have a question that's going to sound dumb since it's the Republican Governors Association but how political was it not not very not as political as some of the house and senate um there was conversation about key governors races and potential flips and potential places that you wouldn't expect that the republican governor might be outperforming the republican senate candidate for example um so there was obviously a, a little bit of a political component but it was more implementate like i said implement frustration with this current administration about some of the regulatory hurdles that governors are facing and implementing some of these big laws, but it wasn't as political as, as others that I've been to. Patrick, what, how about, how about in the garden? Very state political. That, Lots okay. of political talk last night. I had dinner with uh, governor Evers from Wisconsin was at my table. So I got to hear a lot about his race. Um, and Trump did come up, not in the context of like the Mar-a-Lago safe and like all that stuff that you see on cable news, but the overwhelming view amongst Democrats at the conference and, and that's elected officials, lobbyists, kind of everyone, is that poor Republican candidate quality is keeping Democrats in the races across the board, federally and statewide. The fundamentals of the economy historical trends all point to this should be an excellent cycle for Republicans. There's just, it just, there's not, 
you know, with the exception of like, listen, maybe Roe turns out some core Democratic voters and women in in a bigger way. But all things being equal, that that would offset all of the other trends and things that Republicans have going for them, I think to most Democrats seems unlikely. And we've lived through a couple bad midterm cycles. So we're just kind of like used to what happens when you have unified control of government in Washington. That said, in governor's races and Senate races, there are races that frankly shouldn't even be competitive that are. I can point to a handful of them at the at the U.S. Senate level, Georgia. I mean, that the Fed, I think Governor Kemp is going to win. I I, ended, I think he'll win pretty handily. I mean, it it, it may be a single digit race, but he I don't know many Democrats who think that uh, that he's going to lose in the Senate race. That should be an absolute bank shot pickup for Republicans in in a cycle like this in a midterm cycle. And it's competitive because of horrible candidate quality. Pennsylvania is similar. I mean, it's that's more of a purple state. Um, and and Caitlin can speak to it. I know, you know, she supported uh, a candidate who'd probably be running much better if he was the nominee. It's just kind of unbelievable. And that's where Trump hangs over it because he's handpicking these people that are costing Republicans attempts to win close races. And it's just costing them a lot of money that they've got to kind of keep some of these bad candidates afloat. So we've got, you know, half a dozen Democratic incumbent governors here that I think should be in a lot more trouble than they are, but they're running against terrible candidates. And this is where Trump's imprint on the party has just changed things uh, in a way I don't think any of us could have foreseen, you know. Okay, but, okay, but I don't know if you saw Nate Cohen's art, um, big article in the New York Times this week that was sort of the talk of town about comparing polling errors and being very careful when you're looking at some of these polls. Yeah. And I don't disagree yeah. Caitlin, that this isn't a lot of candidates. Yeah. Caitlin, I'm not saying that Republicans aren't going to have a good election. Like, I just want to be extremely clear about what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Republicans are are screwed. I'm not saying that, you know, Democrats have some kind of polling advantage. I'm just saying you guys should be doing a lot better. Everything okay. is there. The fundamentals are all there and poor candidate quality is making it more competitive than it should be. That that isn't even really debatable. I mean, there are races that you guys should be up seven to 10 points and you're not because Donald Trump picks a bunch of weirdos and these races are competitive. It's just it's I would be so mad if I was a Republican operative. They, and and I, I bet Mitch McConnell, it, it's the first thing he thinks about every day. It's oh, like, yes. I cannot believe that we are competitive in some of these states. I should have a 53-54 seat majority guaranteed, no problem, not even worrying about it, maybe thinking about getting a couple more. Instead, every day they're sweating it because it's just, it's it shouldn't be this close. Keep your eye on Colorado. I'm saying it now. Keep your yeah. eye on Colorado. Yes, there are races. There are going to be all sorts of surprises because it's yeah. a because it's a funky cycle and it's a midterm. Um, bad, the bad candidates could win. I, I want to be clear about that too. I'm not saying yeah. like my analysis is not that Herschel Walker's nomination ensures that Warnock's going to win. Herschel Walker could win. Dr. Oz could win. They could all win. And it'll just be a reality TV show in the U.S. Senate. But a more mainstream candidate would 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 be doing much better. They they would. I mean, it's just. I mean, look at Pennsylvania. And, and this week, our own Joe Hill hosted an event for. Fetterman, the the Democratic candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania, 
um, incredibly well attended. Um, everybody came out and look, he, if he didn't have a stroke, I think would have absolutely trounced Dr. Oz. Um, but he's still up and he, I mean, he's better and did, did reasonably well. Um, but he's, 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 he's still up and the guy is just getting out of bed. It's, I mean, it's crazy. And no, I, I totally agree. And apparently so does Chuck Schumer, I, at least as far as, um, the Republicans chances in the house, Caitlin, Chuck said this week that, um, Nancy's in trouble in the house, which is not breaking news. I mean, I, everybody here thinks it's a foregone conclusion that, that they lose the house. Yeah. It's all about the Senate and then down ballot. I mean, down ballot is huge. Look at the Dobbs decision and the importance of the makeup of States and, and the governor's elections, like you've been saying, and it's a, it's a, it's going to be a crazy cycle. Yeah. 53 days guys. It's, it's really here. 53 days. Well, I feel like we're going to have like five October surprises before the election, too. I mean, the part that feels similar to me, Howard, we talked about it a little we had dinner with one of our clients in Washington. One of the things that feels similar is that inflation is this metric that you're waiting on each month for a report to see which direction it's going. It reminds me of 2010 with the unemployment number like that was just every month you were like, what are they going to say? What's it going to be? How's the market going to react? And how is that going to impact the midterm election? And it just has that kind of feeling to me a little bit. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's huge. I mean, that's definitely going away on the election. I think, I mean, who knows October surprise? Like, I don't know. I'm going to gamble that there isn't one this year that yeah. we're, we're going to go into the election kind of as we find ourselves today, which is a muddled picture. Biden's approval ratings are, are up. There's still a huge gap between approve and disapprove negative gap, but they're, they're up, I think. And, and we'll see what happens. I, it's all about, it's all about turnout as usual. And who goes to the polls, and and we'll see what happens. It's because he brought the aviators back, Howard. <laughs> you see him now. Every time you see him, he's got those cool sunglasses on. He's really he from an imaging perspective, he's projecting a little bit more vitality. I think it's the aviators. Totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think he is, and he's he's doing better. It's I. It's. Maybe he won't run again, but I think he will. If things, if the election were going to be held next year, I think he'd be running again. And I just don't, I don't think you give up incumbency. There's a huge incumbent advantage. And I just don't think you give that up. And I think they are doing a better job of managing his image. I think he's doing a better job. Whatever medication he's taking, he looks better, sounds better. Yeah, See what I've also I I agree with you, Howard. He also you have to you cannot underestimate the sense of duty he is going to feel if Trump runs again on the Republican side. I mean, he is just 
everything that he is, whether or not this is the right analysis or not, by the way, for himself, he is not going to leave the Democratic Party to fend for themselves if Trump is is walking to the nomination in 2024. He just won't do it. He's yeah. he's going to feel a sense of duty. He didn't run in 2016. He regretted it. He felt a real sense of accomplishment that he beat Trump in 2020, proved he could do it, and he's going to run again if if Trump runs. He just I will. Mean, I mean, I'm sure he wants to continue to be president. Yeah. I think it's more a question of whether he can. And then it's a question of whether who can beat, who can beat Trump and, and how do you put your best foot forward? Because it's it. And what candidate is most likely to, to beat Trump? There are (laughs) most people who run on the democratic side of people. If you put a slate out there, most of the, the 2020 slate would not have beat Trump. Right. That's just a fact. And Biden knows that, too. And that's even, you know, I mentioned the half a dozen governors that all want to run for president. You know, even amongst the ones that are politically talented and build all these connections, until you've run a presidential race, uh, you're still kind of green about the whole thing. And, you know, Biden feels he feels he's going to feel like I am the most prepared. I beat him before and I'm not going to let a bunch of governors and senators and mayors like scream at each other for a year and a half and risk having Trump, you know, ascendant again. He's just he's just not going to do that. Similarly, on the Republican side, I mean, it cracks me up every time somebody talks about Ron DeSantis as if he's the alternative to Donald Trump. Like, yes, he's done a an effective job of managing his image on the national stage over the last couple of years, principally arising out of covid. But he has spent exactly zero days in the national limelight. There's, n- we have no idea how he how he's going to perform. There's no reason to believe that he's going to run an effective presidential that he's going to make an effective presidential candidate. Look at Kamala Harris; she was a horrible presidential candidate. And she floundered like and she was everybody's like darling candidate going into it. We have no idea what the alternatives are at this point, And it's wide open if it's not those two. But we'll see what happens. Anyway, let's leave it there. Patrick, Caitlin, great as always. And we will be back next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.